Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Uh, here we go. Three, two, one. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we've got one person who has a PhD in experimental nuclear physics from Duke, and the other person has won his fantasy football championship two out of the last three years. So we've got some smart people on the line. So let me welcome to the show Paul Wallace. How are you, Paul? I'm good, thank you. And you are joining us from just outside of Atlanta. Right. Right. You know, I spent a summer living in Alpharetta. Oh, yeah, that's, that's way, up, uh, way up north, what, out in the Burbs. What part, are you, like, what part of Atlanta are you? It's in, De- it's in Decatur, which is uh, probably, from most people's point of view, the suburbs. But in, the, in, in Atlanta, it's considered in town. It's oh. considered urban. Are you from Atlanta? Yes, I'm from. I was raised in the suburbs about uh, four miles out, further out. Than oh, okay, cool. Now. now, I know where you did your graduate work, and we'll get to that in a second. But where did you go to undergrad? Okay. Well, I went to two places. I went to Young Harris College. My my, my grades in high school were not exactly uh, stellar. Uh, I was a bit off the grid during high school. And I went to this small two-year college in the North Georgia Mountains called Young Harris. Mm-hmm. And from there, transferred to Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. Okay. So, I, so my bachelor's degree is from Furman. And so what was your bachelor's in? Physics. Physics. And so you ended up going yeah. to Duke for your Ph.D., did you have to do a master's first, or did you just jump right in? Well, it's, it's sort of like something that you get along the way. At some point yeah. along the PhD path, you fulfill the – so I signed a form and got a master's, but it was kind of a, yeah. a formality. Yeah, so you said that you weren't so good with grades early on. Uh, I don't think many people who get PhDs from Duke don't have good grades. So I don't know how much <laughs> I believe you on that. Well, I'll, I'll send you my transcript, and you'll <laughs> I was in the lower, in the last, uh, and I don't mean to, uh, you know, I'm not making this up. I was actually in the last tenth of the, the lowest tenth of the class. Wow. Uh, lots of C's and D's. I just wasn't, I don't know where I was in high Ooh, school. What changed? How, I was in the marching band. I, okay. I, that's one thing I did well. Was I was in the you were in the band. Ba- well, what, what changed? How did you go from that to getting into Duke? Yeah, well, what happened was I went to Young Harris, which is a tiny little college up in the North Georgia Mountains. And that was the first place where I had teachers who really believed in me and really mm. saw something in me that they thought was praiseworthy, you know, and, and good. And, and uh, as soon as I had that, it was like I just – I was a total study geek after really? that. Really? Yeah, it was, it was night and day. I, it was it – was, the, the, the high school I went to in Atlanta was a pretty high-pressure private school. Okay. Uh, it's a Catholic high school. Lots of you know people went to Harvard and Princeton, places like that. And I, when I went to Young Harris, it's like the pressure was off. Hmm. I had there was no competition. It was just up in the mountains and kind of like summer camp. What What was your career track at that point? What did you think you were going to do? I had no clue. I, want, I was about to be an English major. Okay. Uh, but th- then I took physics, and it was like. Um, it was like, uh, I mentioned this in the book, it was kind of like uh, putting on an old shoe that wasn't old, but fit my sho- foot, per- it was like, it fit the way I thought, it just was, it just completely turned me on. Huh. You know, it's like, I've been thinking this way my whole life, but I never knew it. Oh, That's what okay. it felt like when I took physics. If you were thinking you're going to go English, and then you find physics as the shoe that just fits you, it seems like those yeah. are like different sides of the brain, I'm, I'm assuming. It, it, so it's a, a completely different way of thinking, but somehow that was the, was that home for you? Yeah, physics was easier for me. Um, and, and I'm telling you, it just, it just fit the way I thought. That's funny. Um, but I always loved to write. My teachers really did, did, 
did uh, encourage me a lot. My English professors did, and I always loved to write. But uh, at least for a while, physics was easier. I don't know how hard English, like literature graduate courses get. Physics got more difficult. Mm-hmm. In graduate school, it was very That's hard. That's so weird because I would but, think if you're going to get a Ph.D. in experimental nuclear physics, it would be just a cakewalk. But I guess not. I guess not. But you do. You don't. Tur- tur- turns out you'd be surprised. It's okay. Not, it's not that. Easy. Now there's a stereotype that I would think someone who is a nuclear physicist would not be a good writer. And I read your book, and you actually are a good writer. So I feel like that base well, of English and and uh, in literature comes through in the fact that you obviously are an author now. So it worked out well for you. Well, I had. I also actually had some teachers who did not like me in high school, who I have to thank because they were really kind of hard asses when it came to um, teach writing and grammar and spelling and words. I mean, I was pretty hard. I was drilled pretty tough in high yeah. school on, on writing and reading. See, I so. had an uh, art teacher in eighth grade who asked if any of us in art class were going to take art in high school, and I said I was, and she said, Luke, you shouldn't do it because you'll ruin class for everyone else. But the difference is, like, <laughs> I didn't become a good artist. So luckily, your teachers who are hard on you... Well, did you take the I class? Did. Just to spite her. Okay. <laughs> of course you did. Good. I'm glad you did. But I'm ter- I'm not a, I'm not artistic at all. So, whatever. But okay. So you get your PhD, and then mm-hmm. you I guess you go back and you get an MDiv from Columbia. Is that right? Yeah, uh, from uh, Candler. From Candler. Yeah, uh, close to Columbia. Columbia is nearby too. Yes. Um, but there was a period of about um, let's see, ninety six. About 12 years in there. What, okay, so what happens to make you go back and get an MDiv? Well, it depends on who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to church people, I say I felt I was called okay. to ministry. If I'm talking to people who are not used to the language of Christianity or the church, I say I had an itch I had to scratch. Okay. You know, I'll go with either of those. And, and, and they're not you know, mutually exclusive, yeah. but that's, that's how I answer the question. Hmm. So you grew up going to church, and you're right now you're part Absolutely. of like First Baptist Decatur. Is that right? First Baptist Decatur. Yeah. Right. Is, did you grow up in the Baptist church? I did. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I was out of it for a long time. Yeah. So you grew up. You and, and you tell some uh, the story to some degree in the book where uh, you have this timeline of how things are supposed to go according to you know your school or your, your Sunday school, mm-hmm. your church, and then you read what was right. it like the Time Magazine, Cosmos or something yeah, like that? Time Life book. Yeah, that's yeah. when I was about ten. My dad showed that book to me. And they didn't fit together. They're different stories. No, right. Quite different. Yeah. <laughs> Crazily different. <laughs> so was that when you started to realize, oh, you, you said you left the, the church for a while. Was that the beginning of what caused you to leave the church? Or It, it might have been. It might have started that early. It certainly got me questioning what I was being told in church very early. Mm-hmm. But my dad kind of encouraged that. He was never, he never discouraged my questions. Um, really? But yeah, it probably did start that early. You said your dad never discouraged your questions. It, no, your dad, I, I assume, was taking you to church, so I assume he was a, a person of faith? Yes, he was. He was also a professor at Georgia Tech. Oh, wow. A, a civil engineering professor. Okay. So you come from a so, smart... No wonder you're a... Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. Pretty smart guy. So he he fostered this this inquiry, this questioning, mm-hmm. and so what happened when you said you left the faith? What happened... When you know your dad wanted you to grow up in a church, and then you're not a part of a church anymore. Well, you know, I th- I think it probably worried him some mm-hmm. when I left the church. Um, I'm not sure how they took that. I know they prayed for me a lot. Mm-hmm. My parents did, um, but they never, you know, um, they never really brought it up. You know, they never really 
sat down and said, now, son, why are, why are you not going to church? You know, yeah. they just, you know, fed me when I came home from college and graduate school. And Thanks, Mom and Dad. You know. When, yeah. when okay, you're not a person of faith, and I'm assuming you, you felt like you evolved past that. I'm just kind of putting words in your mouth. But then you know sure. that your parents are still praying for you. How, how did you mm-hmm. receive that? Do you think, oh, that's so silly? Or I thought, no, 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 I thought it was nice of them. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I was never hostile to the idea of God. I'm not sure I ever actually became an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you know, I was learning about the cosmos. I was learning about science and the world we live in. And the the narrative of Christianity, as I understood it at the time, was insufficient. Hmm. What was insufficient to what about I was it? learning? It just seemed so small and so irrational, um, you know. And, and and I have to impress upon you that the narrative, as I understood it then, is not the same as I understand it now. Okay. Uh, but it really came across as kind of small and insufficient to just the way I saw the world to be, mm-hmm. and the bigness of things, and how little we know of things. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always been sort of uh, sensitive to ignorance. I, I've always been aware of my ignorance. Hmm. Um, I just try to pretend like it's not there. I just blow right past <laughs> it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some of my best days are those days when I do the same thing. Yeah. Okay. In, in the book, you say that the, um, the narrative of, okay, so there's a world, you know, we, sin broke it, and you right. know, the, whole, the whole story is, okay, how do we fix this world that we broke? That's a narrative that you seem to say that's that's obsolete. It, would that be fair to say? That's what I felt. That, that's what I felt when I was about twenty. Okay. Yes. Do you f- still feel the same way right now? No. Okay. The same no. narrative which uh, you thought was obsolete when you're twenty, at however old you are right now, it's not obsolete. W- it's not. Obsolete. What what changed? It's. T- I realized how broken I am. <laughs> hmm. I was. I realized just how. Um, limited and insufficient I've, I, I, I experienced myself to be. Uh, as I mentioned in the book, I'm, a, I'm an addict and have been in 12-step programs now for many years. And um, that experience, more than any other, has convinced me that what the Christian faith is about is something that was so, it was so deep that I did not know what it was about when I was mm. younger. I had to live a while to figure out what it so was about. So coming to grips with your own humanity, your own brokenness, is yeah. what made you say, yeah. okay, this, this story about there's something wrong with everyone, with the world. Yes. You go, okay, Yes, I can get into that. Yes. Yes. The fall, you know, the whole thing about the fall and the, and the sense that there is something in us which is out of sync mm-hmm. that I didn't really believe when I was mm-hmm. 20, but I do now. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it seems like so many people, when you have to deal with your mortality, you have to find some answer for it. And, you know, the, the, the Christian story is a story that deals with, okay, this is what your humanity, humanity looks like, and this is a way to make sense of it. And, uh, yeah, of course, I mean, it seems like that's a, that, exactly. that's a story which it seems like so many of us fall into. It's like, okay, this, this makes sense uh-huh. of my own humanity. Uh-huh. It, it, it fits my life at the deepest level that mm-hmm. I'm aware of, yeah. you know. And I wasn't aware of that level when mm-hmm. I was 20. Well, that's good. Okay, so one of the things that uh, you say in the book that was really fascinating to me is in recorded time, if recorded time was like 10 years, humanity has been around for like three minutes. Is that the right right. numbers? In fact, that's that's pretty close to right. Uh, I can't remember that particular part of the book, but I do know that if cosmic time is stretched out over a year, then recorded history spans 15 seconds of that year. 
That's recorded. That's like from the earliest scratchings, Sumerians and so forth, you know. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't alive back then, but that's a long, long time ago. Now, the Genesis creation story, Uh uh, as you say in the book, it's an anthropomorphic, anthropocentric creation story. Sorry about that. That's right. Big words, you know, I don't have a PhD from Duke. I'll just kind (laughs) of sound the same. They all sound the same. And so help us understand the difference in having this you know, human-centered story and how that impacts how we understand the world and God. Say that, can you, can you rephrase the question? No, because I don't know the word, and so I'm just trying to make sense like I pretend like I know what that means. What's wrong with an anthropocentric creation story? Like, Oh, nothing's, nothing's wrong with it except for if you spend enough time learning about science and about the cosmos that we live in, um, humanity starts looking like a footnote to a footnote to a footnote, Mm -hmm. not even really an afterthought. Mm -hmm. And so you have on one hand this story, which is radically not anthropocentric, Mm -hmm. radically, and another story which is radically anthropocentric. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's that emphasis on human beings, which makes them difficult for many people, I think, to to reconcile. Mm -hmm. So how the the just they just have such different atmospheres, such different flavors to just these stories. It's okay, almost like water and oil. So I'm going to pretend for my listeners like I don't know a ton about science because all my okay. listeners know that I am a, a well-read science sciencey <clears throat> person. I took <laughs> astronomy 16 years ago as a sophomore in college, so I obviously remembered all of it. Sure but, you did. Yeah. So if I come from Christian background. The Genesis mm-hmm. creation, the first creation story is the one that I, okay, this one makes right. sense to the world to me. I hear in science that I'm a footnote of a footnote of a footnote. Should that dismantle my understanding of, wait a minute, God created the world for me? And if so, like, how do I understand my existence? No, I don't think it completely dismantles that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, don't have a, I don't have a systematic way of reconciling the two pictures. Okay. I wish I did, but I don't. Um. The reason why I chose the story of, of Job, and I don't want to get ahead of our conversation here, is that that story of Job and God's answer to Job sort of takes one world, the anthropocentric world, and the other world, the radically, you know, the, the cosmos has very little to do with this at all, and like stitches them together with a single stitch, mm-hmm. like two tapestries, and it just brings them together a little, a little closer together. Mm-hmm. Um, what I don't say too much in the book is that I actually do think that human beings are important. Uh, you know, that's not, that's not show up in the book. Um, but I, I, I do think that, uh, it's interesting that, um, I do believe in a personal God. In other words, I do think that there, that there is something in this, which, ha- which bears the divine image. Yeah. Um, but you're not going to get that simply by doing science. Okay. You're not going to find that simply by doing science. So how do you find that? You said for you, obviously, your journey through dealing with yeah. you know, 12-step program and your own addiction, that's how you found that? Uh, partially, yeah. Partially, I did find it that way. Um, I think that basically what the scientific view does is it just takes all ideas of purpose and meaning and sort of puts them on the shelf. Before it even goes to work. Okay. So when you come home from a day at the, at the, day at the lab or the observatory, 
uh, you don't have anything in hand that, re- that, that helps you with questions of meaning and purpose mm-hmm. because science can't deliver that. Um, and so if you look at the world and through a perspective of science, you're not going to find meaning because, it, because it, 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 it puts it on the shelf before it even goes to work. Mm. Um, what, what, what you bring home with you when you come home from a day of, from a life of doing science has to be contextualized somehow. Hmm. It demands a context. Yeah. And you're going to give it a context no matter what you do. And so the question is, what's the best context? And I've found Christianity to be the best context yeah. for it. So I, I've heard someone say that, uh, you know, science can tell you, you know, why, um, you know, why it's interesting for us to look at a sunset. You know, maybe mm-hmm. it's because early on that showed that we could see a lot and maybe that meant we were safe or, you know, evolutionary biologists or historians can have some rationale for why, uh, why we care about that. Or in your book, you talk right. about the reason we have um, a weird flap of skin in between our eyes yeah, yeah. because of yeah. whatever that means, or why we have a tailbone. But mm-hmm. it won't make sense of why we find that, like, why do I even care about that? Like, it, it won't deal with right. the, the bigger question. And so f- for you, you're oddly positioned as someone who both ha- lives in the scientific world, but you also have an MDiv. And so it right. seems like that's a, a weird dichotomy. A lot of people have this sense of there's God and then there's science. Like there's theology and science as though they're enemies, which I think is, uh, you know, a really problematic worldview. And in the book, you spell out how, um, you know, Al Mohler is this, you know, well-known Baptist guy, and then Richard Dawkins, that they both have a very similar, like, science-to-God ratio. Can you explain mm-hmm. about that? Yeah, well, you know, those two guys are pretty good representatives of, of the way that the science and religion discussion has been framed in the popular press. Mm-hmm. On one hand, you've got the new atheists like Richard Dawkins, who basically think that everything is uh, science is all there is. Mm-hmm. And then you've got folks like Al Mohler, who thinks that, you know, the secrets of the cosmos can be discovered in the Bible. Um, and so what, what you've got on one side of the table is uh, Dawkins, who is basically the inverse in every way of Mueller. They, they, they have the same assumption, however, which is that God is an idea that can be played like an idea, uh, you know, like any other idea. But, it, but, per, but perhaps God can't be played that way. Um, that's an unfortunate way that the, that, that, that the um, discussion has been framed. Mm-hmm. Explain what played like an idea means. You know, when, when I teach my students physics, we have Newton's laws, right? I saw them in high school. I see them again in college physics. These are concepts. These are ideas that okay. you can picture. And once you get them, you can sort of hold them in your head and turn them around. And you, they're kind of transparent. They're, you know, you, you can manipulate them. Mm-hmm. And you have a sense and a feel for how they operate. And, and so you can apply them everywhere. And you can see them happening all around you. They're ideas which you are in control of in a sense. God is yeah. not an idea that you can that you can put down to that size and turn around and make transparent and look at from different directions and control. Simply not that way. God yeah. is not an item among items. You know. So how how do you personally uh imagine your relationship with the divine if it's not an idea, you live in a world of ideas that you can hold. How, how do you do it that? Uh, I, I I mean, I have to have an idea, right? There's always you, you can't have a discussion like this. I can't convey to you what God is without using an idea. Um, yeah. 
but you can hold ideas more or less lightly. And um, God, for me, is more of a, of a continual presence, um, kind of in the background, always present, which can be made, you can become aware of it only when you get kind of quiet. <laughs> this is how it works for me. I'm talking very personally okay. here. Um, yeah. You know, the story of Elijah, when Elijah runs, runs from God, runs out to the wilderness, and um, God is in, God, you know, there's a fire and there's a whirlwind and there's an earthquake. And uh, Elijah's standing at the mouth of the cave and hears the whirlwind and the fire and the earthquake, but God's not in those things. And then in the silence, he becomes aware of God's presence. That's f- basically the best metaphor in the Bible that, I've, that, 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 that matches the way I understand God. This sort of an always, mm. always there presence, which if you choose to, you can ignore, <laughs> but which is always there. Mm-hmm. And, mm. and in moments of like silence, that. you might be, you might be able to connect, you know. Yeah. So Richard Rohr helped me re- rethink my understanding of like God's presence, which gets to that same conclusion where, you know, we've often prayed, you know, God, would you please show up? God, show up in here. And then the real, you know, the real question isn't, will God show up? Is, will I be right. aware that God's already for, always around? For me, so it's a negative thing. For me, it's, can I get rid of all the crap so that I can become aware hmm. of God? God will show yeah, up if, yeah. if I'm able to take, get rid of all the noise in my head, basically. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I get there too, for sure. Yeah, get rid of all the junk that prevents you from seeing it. And so you're you're able to hold these two things together that, you know, God's not an idea, God is a presence mm-hmm. that's always around you. And you can do this in a way that it's not antagonistic towards your scientific no. training and your life. Is that, and, you know, you reference a Barna study in the book that that one of the big critiques of Christianity today by many people is that it's too antagonistic towards right. science. And so... I had a friend who's a real smart person like yourself, and I was hanging out with some of his friends, and they're all you know Harvard surgeons, or they're they're finishing their residency at Boston General or something like that. And one of them is a guy who's from the South, went up north, got his mm-hmm. you know PhD or his MD, and he said you know when he goes back south, people are like, oh, so you're you've given up on faith now because you believe in evolution. And he says, no, I, I deal with evolution every day in my job. I see it. But I need, I don't want to give up on my faith and I want to be able to reconcile right. these things together. I, I feel like a lot of people are in that Many situation. People. And as someone who, who lives there yourself, how do you live in a world that you can bring science and religion together? And how do you see it being able to, to, to be that um, way for others? The way I see it, science is completely contextualized by faith. So if you've got a Venn diagram here, okay. you've got faith as the big circle. Science is a small circle, mm-hmm. and the small circle of science is completely enveloped by the larger circle of Christianity. Okay. So hmm. I see faith as the thing that must expand in order to contain science. They're not, they're not oh, okay. equally they're – not, they're not two competing views of the world that have different bases mm-hmm. and that they fire each other across some, some, you know, some no. central neutral zone. They're actually – Science for me is actually contained within my faith. Why do you why do you think others don't have that same sort of like all truth is God's truth kind of I don't, mentality? But instead, I, they... I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I honest to God, I do not know why that is. Um, I've always had a sense. Do you think it's evolution? No, you go ahead. I've always had a sense of God's bigness. Um, I remember even mm-hmm. ever since I was a small child, I've always had a sense 
and I mentioned this a little bit in the book of just just how you know big, not physically big, but 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 significant and important and all in, all enveloping God would, would have to be in order to be God. Where did where do you think that came from? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that when I went to church when I was a young child, I, it, it really went in deep with me. It doesn't go in with everybody. Um, but for some reason, it went in really deep with me, and I struggled very early to reconcile science and religion. I was doing this when I was 10. And I, I have only realized as an adult how odd that is, that I was trying to fight this, work this out when I was 10. But I guess I got to a point many years ago where it just became the natural way to think. Mm-hmm. Of that, that, that if religion is going to be what religion is, and this doesn't include just Christianity, if religion is going to be what religion claims to be, which is all-encompassing, then mm-hmm. it's got to contain science. It's got to contain the cosmos, too. Hmm. I mean, religion's about everything. You know, it, 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 it construes hmm. the entire world without gaps. You know, everything. And um, science doesn't do that. No, I, I think the word religion has at its uh, etymol- etymological, you know, background the idea of ligaments and like rejoining, like you're you're bringing things back together. Now, if that's true, not, I don't know, but I like the image, I've like never, it's supposed yeah. to bring. Yeah, I, I might have just made it up. That's really good, though. But you, gotta, you gotta keep repeating it. Eventually, it'll catch on. Yeah, I'm gonna go with that. <laughs> but like the idea, that, like it brings everything together. Who, someone once said that you know, theology is like the. Uh, like the mother of all studies, mm-hmm. or all you know, all and it's, I like that. It, like it pulls it together, but some don't don't get there. Uh, I, I wonder if for some if it's the idea of evolution, which yeah. is obviously you know. I, I mean, I you think, say in the book that we see. Go ahead. I think that part of the problem is that science can do what it does without mentioning God. Without, in, in fact, science mm. gets its power. By not mentioning God, that's where that's where it gets its power. It gets its power from its limited scope, and and I think that's what to answer the earlier question. I think that's what throws people off, is because science can go about and do its business without recourse to religious ideas. Then it must be anti-religious. Hmm. That combined with science's obvious obvious great success and power, I think have cowed a lot of people into thinking that it. It, you know, is necessarily in a combative stance with with religious faith. Maybe. Yeah. So they can describe what's happened without having to say this is God. Right. And that therefore makes God irrelevant to some. They think. I think. It, I think. Who it bugs are the people who think you have to talk about God for it to be about God. <clears throat> Do you know what I mean? I mean, there seems yeah. to be an idea that if if you don't explicitly mention God, then whatever you're doing can't really be about God. Uh, okay, so say I'm say I'm that person. Okay, how how do I see things differently? Because I think I want it, it's about God, so we need to talk about God. How can I move past that? I think it has to do with understanding at a deep level that our language and our words are not fundamental. Reality mm-hmm. is fundamental, whatever that is. But our language mm-hmm. and our concepts are just structures that we sort of place over reality. We, so, we confuse our yeah. words and our concepts with what's actually real. Oh, that's fascinating. See what I'm saying? And yeah, that, de- that leads to definitely. this. Definitely. So, so if it's not about God, how can it be about God? No, it's like hmm. 
you know, C.S. Lewis said something really simple one day. That when, I read this when I was about 22 years old, and it made a deep impression on me. He talked about a boat, and he talked about language, and he said, uh, or, you know, whatever the French word for boat is. I don't know. What's the French word for boat? Okay. I just bad no, Okay. So anyway, we have two words. So, <laughs> like I know French. <laughs> so, in other words, let's say that it's boto. I have no idea. Okay. It's not boto. Okay. I I'll, can get with that. Okay, boto. Now people are laughing at my sure. horrible French, but you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm an American. So, uh, the the tendency is to think, okay, our word boat means boto. It doesn't mean boto. Mm-hmm. It means that wooden object over there in the water, right? The word. Boat. Yeah. You see, what I'm saying the word boat doesn't doesn't mean boto. Hmm. The word boat and the word boto are both words for that real object sitting over there in the water. Yes, the, the real object is the main thing, not our words for it. Mm-hmm. And I think people and so our world confusion. Yeah, our words will always be short. Like they will yeah, not. Our, all, our description of reality is not reality. That's right. Okay, so you have this uh, great reference to a back and forth between. Rowan Williams and Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. And at the end, uh, Rowan Williams says, I'm not talking about God as an extra who you can shoehorn into that. That's just not how I see it. And then Dawkins says, that is exactly mm-hmm. how I see it. Mm-hmm. And so God isn't like this thing like you, you can push in, you can take out. It's the whole reality. God it's is. The whole existence. Yes. yes. And so for you, it's learning to live that like God is always present. God is always around you. Is that how you get there to this understanding that God isn't, shoehorn a bull? Yes, yes, yes. To imagine the world without God is, is nonsense to me. Mm-hmm. To imagine myself without God is nonsense to me. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's talk about something that might seem like nonsense to some people. Okay, let's You do made it. fun of the saint of modern Christianity, Max Lucado. <laughs> my poor mother I, she gave that book to us <laughs> i'm like an hour and a half away from max right now <clears throat> yeah we're from the same denomination okay i went to school with his daughters so my own voice is failing me right now because it doesn't want to say anything bad about max lucado <clears throat> but in the book <clears throat> sorry it's the patron saint of church of christ sorry g- g- give yourself a minute this. to uh, collect yourself it's fine <clears throat> i'm gonna do my best okay Okay, so you compare, and this is really a fair comparison, like that the, the Max Lucado child's book you read, yes. which you read, it's, it's fine for a kid to read. It's great. It is a children's book. That's, That's right. what it should be. Do, That's do. right. And in some ways, it kind of gives the proverbial wisdom, like the wisdom we see in Proverbs. Like, right. you do good things, good things happen to you. Right. God wants the best for you. Right. And then you compare that to what Job experiences with God, and it's a completely different understanding of God. It's this non-anthropocentric view. Am I saying that word right? I don't feel like Beautifully. I Beautifully. Yes. Thank you. So what's the difference in, say, Job's non-anthropocentric view, non-man-centered, and, say, like Proverbs? Okay. In Proverbs, um, basically in Proverbs, the underlying logic in Proverbs is that if you do good, if you, if you, if you seek God truly, if you seek righteousness and follow the wisdom of the sages, then you will flourish. And in obvious kind of ways, you know, lots of, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll receive uh, respect from your peers. You know, you'll be successful um, financially and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's a very human way of thinking about God because that's how we treat our children, right? That's how yeah. we treat our, that, that's how the dad in the book, in the Locato book, treats his daughter. You know, I'm going to be here for you. I'm going to love you. You're going to do good. And, and yeah. um, I'm going to treat you with great love. And even if you kind of mess up, I'm going to be there for you. Um, let, me, let me actually back that up. Sorry to ramble, but um, all right. in Proverbs, basically, if you do good, you get good. Uh, Job is a critique of that. Job is basically just a strong corrective force to that idea, um, mm-hmm. saying, you know, you can do whatever you want. You can be good if you want. You can do everything in the world. You can, you can even have your heart, you know, oriented towards God and do all the right stuff and be truly wise and truly generous and truly good. And still, that's no guarantee that you're going to get good. In fact, yeah. in Job's case, he got, he got rained on because he was so good. If he hadn't been so mm-hmm. good, nobody would have paid him any attention. So he got it because he was so good, not, not, in, not in spite of it. Yeah. Some have said that <clears throat> someone said that Job is the corrective against like Deuteronomic theology, like to do good right. good things happen to you. And it's like moving the Jewish tradition past the simplistic understanding of adversity. Right. And so that okay, if you do good then then, then good's gonna happen to you, bad things are happening because you screwed up. And that's what Job's friends say, and obviously if you know the story of Job, then that's not really the case. So how so that shifts things away from Job being the center of it, causing everything, to now he's more on the margins of right. Yeah, right. He was in the he was sort of at the peak of the uh, social pyramid. Mm-hmm. He was perched up there at the top. And so, yeah. so how does that help you, like understanding that you know humanity is not the center of the existence, but we are on the peripheral. You know that uh, that's a good question. I don't know other than it takes some of the pressure off. Um, hmm. I think that it's really easy to get a little self-obsessed, both on a personal level, I can speak for myself, um, and also, I think, on a broader level, it's easy for hum- humanity to get self-obsessed in the same way it's easy for me to get self-obsessed. Yeah. And um, what happens in Job is Job gets uh, marginalized. Yeah. In other words, he comes to identify with the people on the, mar- with, with people on the margins and people who are forgotten and invisible. He doesn't just give like give money to them or food to them. He actually becomes one of them. He identifies with them. Yeah, I like your like your take at the end. You say, you know, I wish Job would have when he got his wealth back that he would have given it away to the poor because he's been there. You yeah, know, right. and so, it would have right. been nice. Like, don't give yeah. away some of your wives. That would be kind of weird. But uh, give away some <laughs> of your money. That would be okay. So I, I get that. Like, I get the Job and the Proverbs thing. As you understand Jesus. How how does that make sense? Because the Jesus story seems to elevate, you know, God cares about people. God sent Jesus um, right. because God loves the world. Right. And by the world, I mean, it's, it's people. I mean, I, I know God's going to redeem all things, but how does, how does the Jesus story affect people then? Well, um, you know, I'll, 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 I'll segue from Job to Jesus by, by saying something that I only mentioned in the last sentence of the book, but which I think is horribly important, is often missed is that God actually does show up on the ash heap for Job. Hmm. Job does cry out, and God does show up. So it's not like God didn't think Job was important. Mm-hmm. God showed up. People are important. You know, you know, Jesus 
incarnates God and then tells us that we're more important than the than the than the birds. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not trying to fully get away from the idea that people are important, mm -hmm. uh, that people are somehow unique. Um, mm -hmm. I'm simply trying to, in the book, produce a little bit of a pushback against what may be self-obsession at times. Gotcha. That's and, all. And you said it takes some of the pressure off? Do yeah. You, so you feel like the self-obsession just leads to pressure for us? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, I think there's a great amount of relief that comes when, when you realize that maybe not everything's up to us. Hmm. Not everything's about us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I once had a time when I was particularly self-obsessed, and I had a dear friend who was wise and who was talking to me, and he said to me, you know, Paul, if you line up all the people in the world, you're in trying to teach me something about humility. Yeah. And I think we can do the same thing with human beings. I mean, it's a big cosmos. We don't know what's out there. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man. And so maybe it's good for us to sit back and say, you know, Maybe if you lined up all the creatures in the cosmos, we're in there somewhere. Yeah. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a bit of a relief to us. Yeah. Maybe that, yeah. that could be a relief. Yeah, I could say that. Okay, so you have another line of the book that was uh, really poignant to me. You said that ex nihilo, referring to you know creation out of nothing, which we get from like uh, Romans 1, I believe. Um, obviously, ex nihilo is not isn't – it, it's Latin, isn't it? It's Latin. Yeah, yeah. so that's actually – whatever. That's like 2% people care that I just said that. Anyway, so ex nihilo, creation out of nothing doesn't work for you, but God creating out of chaos does work for you. It does work for me. Why does chaos, God creating out of chaos, which is Genesis 1, the Genesis 1 story, why does that connect to you so much more than the ex nihilo story? I don't know. I think that my own experience in life, you know, I'll just be really simple about it. I've never seen something come out of nothing. I've never, I can't relate to that. I don't know what that, I don't, ex neo, of course, means creation from absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. And that simply does not connect on any level with my experience or how I understand the world to work. Okay. Not at all. How, I have, however, seen beautiful things come from dark things. And, and I've seen life come from non-life. Um, in the, in, the, in the theological sense, not yeah. maybe in the biological sense, but in the theological sense, I've seen, uh, but I've never seen something come from nothing. I've never seen a rabbit pulled out of a hat, mm -hmm. but I have seen a, an oak tree grow out of an acorn and out of dirt and out of sunlight and, and water. I just don't, I just, in my own life, has been chaotic. I mean, we all have chaotic in our lives, maybe to some degree. Mine certainly has been very chaotic. Yet, uh, from that chaos, I've seen, I have found the most beautiful things to emerge. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's a, that is creation to me. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's one of the most compelling things about the first creation story is that what comes out, what creates life out of chaos isn't more violence. It's not like you pushing someone else down. It's not you having this weird familial thing where you tear someone in half and create a world from them, right. uh, like the Babylonian creation myth. But it's right. God speaks and there's life out of chaos. And that's really right. encouraging right. for me too. And that connects to me in the same way that it does to you, obviously in a different different way because we're different experiences, but it's the same thing that's really powerful to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the book, Stars Beneath Us, great book. I really enjoyed it. 
Um, the image comes from one of your students who yes. never realized that stars were actually underneath their feet because they thought stars were just above our, our well, head. At least that's what he, I mean, he knew it intellectually that stars are under his feet. I, I, I never believed it. Like you, you tell the story and everyone's kind of like, oh, of course, they're all around. You know, stars aren't just above that little sliver of earth that currently is pointing up. And I was going, oh, yeah, but I've never thought that either. Like I was, <laughs> I was exactly the same as your student. Like, what an idiot. I think that right now. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let me, I'm going to give you one thing that might stump you. Okay. Okay. Go for I it. saw this on uh, Facebook, and so this meme is pretty much going to change your whole view of how evolution works or oh, if it even exists. Um, so there are like millions of apes, and there, yes, are, there are billions of people. I That's don't right. know any that are right in the middle. So evolution didn't happen. Right. You got me. Are you going to change you your me. whole stance now? Yep. You got me. No. Uh, we, <laughs> <laughs> do you want me to answer? I mean, you want me to? <laughs> no. Yeah, you're go ahead. Give, actually, just, I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer. You're around, aren't you? No, give no. me the answer. What is the actual answer The, for the that? actual answer is that, is that those apes weren't here two million years ago either. You know, five million years ago, those apes weren't here either. Yeah, those apes and us came from earlier species that no longer exist. Yeah. Okay. You did reference what is it? Luca, the acronym that Luca, stands, right? Which is the my name in Swahili. Luca. Is that right? FYI, yeah. So there's like some like three billion years ago is what everything descended from. Is yeah, that a little right? more than that? But yeah, that's right. Uh, Sorry, I've lost a half a billion years in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's half a billion years between friends? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> hey, Paul, thank you for writing this book, Stars Beneath Us. I highly encourage you. And it's not even that long of a book, so anyone no, can read it's, it. No, it's short. And you don't – and I mean this as nice as possible. You don't write like a physicist. Thank you. <laughs> you could say, Luke, you do science like a preacher, and I would say that's very true. <laughs> I won't Thanks again. You that. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.